November 26th, what was dead. Who are you? Ripley Ellen, Lieutenant First Class. Ellen Ripley died 200 years ago. Shall be reborn. What's going on here? What was destroyed. He is breeding an alien species. Will be resurrected. Wish you could understand what we're trying to do here. Now they brought it out of you. Not all the way out. You want to tell us what this is? It's a queen. She'll breed. You'll die. And welcome to Cinemarcade. This is the podcast about movies, video games, and the sparks that fly when those two worlds collide, or kind of like when the two alien species collide and create like a crossbreed, <laughs> like a half movie, half video game kind of thing that kind of looks like a big wet baby. Yeah, that's 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 kind of what our podcast is, right? Don't you guys think of our podcast as just a big wet baby with fangs? Yes, this is yeah. just a big wet baby with fangs. Yep. Absolutely. Big wet baby energy. Uh, my name is Steve Gunley. Who's joining me today? We're, we're, we're recording remotely, so our timing is more off than usual. <laughs> I don't think we're doing too bad. Uh, I'm Jay Ban. Uh, hi, I'm Justin. Uh, I'm definitely not the milk baby alien. <laughs> You're not the milk baby alien? No, I never want to be the milk baby alien. What about in its original design when it had both sets of uh, sex organs? Like the, they were just flapping around everywhere. Mm. No, you're not no, that good. one? I'm good. <laughs> I'm very good. Well, if you haven't pieced it together from uh, that little snippet there, we are talking today about the movie Alien Resurrection, putting the final little capper on our really fun little alien miniseries that we've been doing this month. Uh, there are more alien movies, but there are not more alien movie-based games. So this is the end of the line for us. Uh, we're talking about Alien Resurrection, which was released November 22nd, 1997, directed by Jean-Pierre Genet and written by Joss Whedon. And it stars Sigourney Weaver, Winona Ryder, Ron Perlman, Dan Hedaya, J.E. Freeman, Brad Dourif, Michael Wincott, Dominique Pignon, Gary Dordan, Kim Flowers, and Leland Orser. Uh, all right, so we're, we're at the end of this series, uh, and... You know, I, I said la I, I had the feeling that last week was going to be our most divisive episode, and now I'm wondering if it might be this one. We saved one, our best for last, apparently. This movie is absolutely fucking wild. Uh, this is the the weirdest, campiest, straight up kinkiest movie in the Alien franchise. It is like somebody wrote Alien slash fiction and like made scenes Honestly. of it come to life in this movie. A remarkable that, amount of it made it into this movie, yes. <laughs> there was multiple scenes where I was just watching going, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. scenes where I'm going to be like, are they going to fuck that alien? Yes, <laughs> especially at the end. I literally just finished watching this movie minutes ago, and I was yeah. like, is she going to? 
is this gonna be a like a fuck murder like what's happening here that's like her that's like her grandchild too right like yeah. i don't know i forget how the lineage works there i think the queen was birthed from her yeah that's a whole complicated thing also um uh I spent so much of the movie wondering what part of cloning allowed you to clone the baby inside the person without having any of that. <laughs> the answer to that is the future. The future. The, Everything's possible in the future. The answer to that was, because I Googled it while watching the movie, the rationale is that she already had the DNA mix when they took her blood. Yeah, And so apparently that DNA mix just comes with a baby alien when you clone it. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I think their, their DNA was like a little fused or something. I always misread this movie as like they were scraping the DNA from the bottom of the furnace. And I'm just like, how is there anything left? But she would have left like blood around. Yes. The and they, like like there are, they would have taken blood samples. They did say it was from her blood samples taken before her death. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I just think it's, uh, I think it's so fascinating that they were, it's 200 years later, they were fixated on Alien Ripley for 200 years. Like, yeah. Who, they couldn't do anything else in 200 years? Yeah, they couldn't like just go look for another alien somewhere. There might be one. I mean, we're getting a little ahead of things because I think this movie uh, uh, is going to have a lot of wild things to talk about. I know that this, this one has a little bit more of a, a bad reputation than a lot of the other movies in this a series, little. but I still kind of stand by this one. I don't defend oh, no. it as vocally as part three. I think it's because... better than three. Oh my God. Really? Okay. All right. All yes, right. I do. I, I, I stand by this. Like, <laughs> I'm not saying it's a good movie, but I'm saying it's an entertaining movie. There's... Oh, it's entertaining as hell. It... And this, this is a series that well, I think as we've established, this is a, a series that never really lets us know what its next move is going to be. And uh, I don't know if any of us could have really fully predicted this one. Although I, will, I would like to go on the record that I did predict this movie. Okay. In 1996, when I was, was 12 year old. years old, I wrote a piece of fan fiction. It was a four-page sequel to Aliens. And it was basically the same plot. They found her blood, <laughs> they cloned her, and they brought her back to life so that they could extract the alien from her. Now, this was a 12-year-old's understanding of genetics, so it could fly then. Are you uh, telling I, me I, that I Joss like... Whedon... No, go ahead, Justin. Are you, are you telling me that Joss Whedon plagiarized your fan fiction? Look, I'm not making any uh, firm accusations. I'm just saying, Joss Whedon, where were you in, hanging out in rural Colorado in 1996? Like uh, in little boys' bedrooms? Whoa. That sounds creepy. Yeah. I don't think so. I don't think so. I think Joss Whedon just has a 12-year-old boy's understanding of genetics. Let's say that. Let's say that. Yeah, that, that seems more reasonable. But yes, we've been we've been throwing that name out here. This is going to be kind of our one and only chance to talk about Joss Whedon on this show. Actually, I was looking things over. I think this is well, definitely our best chance to talk about him. Uh, so Joss Whedon, he's a third generation screenwriter uh, who sold his first script, a goofy comedy called Buffy the Vampire Slayer, when he was only 19 years old. Uh, and Whedon had a bad time on the production of that movie, and he was not happy with the final film that came out. It was released back in 1992. Uh, not very good. Pretty pretty mediocre early 90s movie. Uh, um, I, feel, I feel it's got a special spot in my heart. Um, it, 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 there's there's a, 
there's a very dreamy Luke Perry in that. There's a fun uh, uh, villain turn by Rutger Hauer. There's some stuff to enjoy, but it's a very flatly made, like kind of bl- drab looking movie. Um, so Joss Whedon was frustrated with that whole process. And so he took a staff writing job on Roseanne and uh, took a series of punch up gigs for movies that wound up being pretty major. So he contributed dialogue to Speed, Waterworld and Twister, which are all really big hits. Uh, but his big breakthrough would come out in 1995 when he would share an Oscar for Best Original Screenplay for co-writing Toy Story. Uh, so he, that's that's kind of where he is at this point in his career. Uh, he had a little bit of sway, and Fox was impressed with some of the spec scripts that he'd sent them, and they hired him to write a new film in the Alien series. Now, this proved to be a little bit of a challenge because, as we covered last week, Alien 3 is a pretty definitive end to the series, right? The alien's dead. Your heroine is dead. Like, everyone is dead. There's really no threads to pick up on here. Uh, So he had to get a little creative with it. Plus, you know, Sigourney Weaver also did not want to come back. You know, she did not want this series to be, like, beaten to death. Um, But she was was offered, uh, in uh, uh, a quote from an interview I read with her, she was offered a dump truck of money that was backed up to her house. Uh, which uh, I think she made $11 million on this movie, which I believe was the biggest payday for a female actor ever at that time. In like $97, $98? Yeah, 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 not too too shabby. But she also did like the script because she, this, I guess that's the thing that's going to kind of make or break you with this movie in a lot of ways, is that the Ripley that you get in this movie is not the one that you know. No, right, so she's, she's come a far, far distance from the lady who would save a cat. Uh, yes. She she is the Joss Whedon version of Ripley. <laughs> a little bit, but like way weirder and more twisted. Like this, this version of Ripley has her DNA all scrambled up with the alien that was inside of her. Uh, and so she's she's very literal. Like there's really almost no semblance of the original character in this. She gets to play it as an entirely entirely new character and one who is not entirely human so you could see why like for somebody like her that's a fun acting challenge and i think she makes a meal out of it and has a lot yeah. of fun in this movie i, I think she, she's having a ball it seems like she's having yeah. a ball playing this um very sort of like kind of mean badass as opposed yeah. to Ripley, who was always a very kind badass yeah yeah exactly it's okay what happens if you take Take away all of Ripley's fear, give her some kind of superhuman powers, and then just sort of set her loose. And that's kind of what we have to play with on here. So this series has a pretty solid track record of breaking, like, huge directors, right? So, like, Ridley Scott's first movie, like, James Cameron's, like, first significant movie, and David Fincher's first significant movie. They all went on to have these massive influential careers. And so a lot of, like, up-and-coming filmmakers were looked at. And Mm -hmm. the main guy that they were really trying to get and almost had, I think he had signed on for a little bit before deciding not to do it, was Danny Boyle, who would have been fresh off of train spotting at this time um, and couldn't have been hotter or more exciting of a pick. I think that would have been really cool. Um, He decided he wanted to focus on smaller projects. Uh, Peter Jackson was also approached, which also would have been really friggin' cool. But uh, he he just didn't feel super passionately about the project and instead decided to make some movies called, uh, check my notes, Lords of the Rangs. I don't know what that is. It sounds <laughs> yeah. like um, who would ever watch that? But the final choice they landed on was Jean-Pierre Jeunet. He was a French filmmaker who, along with his directing partner, Mark Caro, was making waves in this cult movie scene. 
Uh, ever since their 1991 debut, Delicatessen, which fucking rules. Check out Delicatessen. It's so crazy. Um, their 1995 sequel was a, or it wasn't a sequel. It was a follow-up. It was called City of Lost Children, which will actually be one of the only foreign films we cover on this show because there is a PS1 game for City of Lost Children. That's going to be one of our most obscure draws on here, and that movie's really cool. Um, but yeah, so they were they were brought on to do this. Uh, they're yeah, he's most famous for making the he follows up this film with Amelie. <laughs> That's the funny thing. Like, this is his one and only attempt at an American film. Uh, it doesn't really go anywhere. And so he goes back to France and immediately makes Amelie, which is not only a huge hit in France, it's a huge hit over here. It's like a massive, like, crossover phenomenon. And uh, a lovely movie. Yeah, I really like that movie. Um, but yeah, so... This did produce a couple of problems. So Genet did not, and by all accounts, still does not speak any English. And so this production had a lot of communication challenges. He had a couple of his favorite people, Dominique Pignon, who plays uh, Ren, the guy in the, uh, is that Ren? No, Vries, the guy in the wheelchair uh, with okay. the very, very thick French accent. He was also reading the script phonetically. He does not speak English. And uh, Ron Perlman, who uh, weirdly, like, Ron Perlman was kind of like an international favorite. Like he was in Guillermo del Toro's first movie. He was in City of Lost Children. He's like the lead of that, playing like a circus strongman. So he had like this, he has this very like uh, uh, transcontinental kind of uh, film career that you would not really expect from Ron Perlman. Um, but yeah, so there, there were some inconsistencies in tone because all the directions were coming like via multiple translators you know like so i think they had a little bit of trouble conveying what they wanted to do uh the movie faced multiple delays and it had to contend with some creative pushback from fox who thought that this film was getting too weird and too sexually charged to be a mainstream <laughs> hit uh you know what and to, to sigourney weaver's credit she swung her weight around a little bit and got a lot of that stuff to stay in she really wanted to stick with the director's vision and like do that, but uh, Genet did agree to make a few changes, such as removing the very prominent genitals from the alien hybrid creature. Oh. Which he had a funny quote about that. He said, "Like I, I took a look at him, like yeah, even for a French guy, this is weird." <laughs> so he has a good sense of humor about himself, at least. Uh, reviews at the time were actually a little kinder than Alien Three received, but uh, it did prove to be a hard sell to get people back to the franchise. Kind of embarrassingly, this opened number two at the box office behind Disney's Flubber. That's a bad one to kind of lose out to. It's like, would you rather go see Alien Resurrection or Flubber? People resoundingly chose Flubber. Flubber this would make a big movie. Yeah, you know, well, what are you going to do? Uh, they, 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 this movie did not have any little dancing vials of gloop, so, you know, <laughs> that's true. Well, it kind of does, but... Yeah, this only made $45 million. It gets a $75 million budget. So it's it's the lowest grossing film in this franchise and kind of killed it dead for a little bit, you know. Um, I Its legacy since then is still pretty mixed, I would say. Like, And and even for me, too. Like, I, I really like a lot of what this movie does. I think it's really audacious and weird, and it's got incredible special effects. Uh, but the tone is all over the place, and I think some of the casting choices just don't work and i don't want to spend this whole podcast picking on winona Ryder, who i love but she is she is out of place in this movie can we agree she's just out of place in this so movie winona yeah. Ryder, i feel is hampered by um a little bit of bad writing on joss whedon's part i yeah. don't feel like he really developed her character or because she just in she acts 
so inconsistently. Um, and uh, I don't know, Joss Whedon has always written robots that, that act like humans instead of robots that act like robots. Yeah. Uh, but it's just like, there are so many times where she just acts angry or annoyed or like all these emotions that didn't make sense for um, her character. Um, and um, Winona Ryder, I think, um, excels in being um, emotional. And so yeah. placing her in this sort of like um, this role of a robot is a very interesting choice. Um, yeah, it, I, I can appreciate she was trying to kind of evolve her career a little bit. This is kind of like peak adult Winona Ryder. I mean, she's only like 26 in this movie. Like you forget how young she was when she started and like that so much of her career hit in the early 20s uh, or in her early 20s. But yeah, she's got like gigantic vulnerable eyes and is really good at conveying like emotion and fragility and vulnerability. And she just does not fit in with this crew that is so grimy and gross. Like yeah. you've got Ron Perlman who's been uglied up with like extra scars and like he's he's gone blind in one eye and he's all muscly and, look, and let's crazy be real. and like Ron Perlman isn't the most conventionally attractive person. Hey, sure. He's look, he's made a long and long career out of here. Ron Perlman can Ron Perlman is a, an attractive man. Like look, he may he's not confident be a man. He may not be pretty, but he's very attractive. Right. Like he has if, a he has a face, you know. Like he's just he got, you're never gonna forget. Face. You're never gonna forget that face. I I'd actually I was asking a friend about uh the the alien movies that we've already done so far and what her opinions on it were, and she couldn't remember which one was the third one. And she's like, "Is that the one with Ron Perlman?" And I was like, "Uh, no, you know, I'm pretty sure no." And then this now when this movie started, I was just like, "Where where's Ron Perlman? What did young Ron Perlman look? Oh, he looked like Ron Perlman." Yeah, he he I mean we first meet him like making monkey noises and throwing a knife at a, a paralyzed man. So, you know, he makes a strong impression. Uh the one thing I really wanted to shout out right off the bat is that this movie is such an early prototype blueprint for Firefly, right? Yeah. Like don't you think the crew of the Betty is like straight up like the first draft of Firefly? I 100% agree. And I uh and this is what something that I'm really glad and one of the reasons I think this movie is better than Aliens 3 is that the characters in the in the ship's crew are memorable. They're memorable people. The and we, we they're very easy to tell apart. Um each one has their own um agenda, their own relationships. Um and you're like and one guy's got like a gun arms gun arms yeah. yeah and it's just like and you, it, you they have they have give and take and i definitely agree with you i feel like winona Ryder's character feels out of place because um like i feel like somebody that young would have been like taken on under their wing like they should have treated her like either as like a kid's sister or or some or something else it just there there was something missing there yeah, she just didn't really convey like the kind of grit that could that could convince them to like let her on her the crew in the first place. You know, like I feel like everybody the entire time would just be like, "Oh yeah, she's definitely a spy, right?" Like she yeah. she's not she's not on the up and up. Also, she seems to be like hoarding all the skincare products and hiding them from the rest of the crew. Like <laughs> she glows. She's, she's gorgeous. So, yes, she's so beautiful, and she just glows. 
<laughs> yeah, and everybody else looks like they just kind of rolled around in some Crisco, you know, like they just they're they're so good. Yeah, like they even the the uh, the female pilot, like they give her kind of like cornrows and make her look a little like grittier, you know. But yeah, I just I never fully bought it with and her. It's always so funny because like you just every single episode, you see how petite Winona Ryder is. Like yeah, she's, she's dwarfed by Sigourney Weaver. Uh, yeah. Which, which, you know, makes for a fun, like, visual dynamic, if nothing else, especially because, like, Ryder's playing it so, uh, well, I mean, see, that's the thing. She's playing it timid, and I don't think she should be. Like, you know, I don't think she should be playing as timid as she does. But but Weaver is just having so much fun being so weird, you know. So that's kind of where we start in this movie, which is uh, Sigourney Weaver's character has been resurrected 200 years after the events of Alien 3. It's a far distant future. And cloning technology has advanced to such a point that they're able to bring her back, successfully extract the alien queen from her chest. And uh, they were surprised that she stayed alive. And so they keep, they keep her alive so they could study her because she is uh, something they've never really seen before. So now I'm going to ask a question. Yeah. How long was the version of the movie that you saw? Uh, like an hour 47. I think there is an extended like cut. That. from. Okay, because yeah. I have once again continued the trend of accidentally finding the extended cut. <laughs> you found all four. There you go. I was like, is this the extended cut? Because when I looked for uh, a subtitle file to go with what I had, I was like, I think this is the extended cut. The subtitle matches the extended cut. So I looked it up and it's like, okay, in the extended cut, she wakes up during the operation. And then right oh. as I read that, she woke up during the operation. I was like, God damn it. Oh, wow. I've yeah. done it again. And I am down to the wire on top. And you haven't seen the you haven't seen the theatrical cut before, have you? Is this no. first timer? Yeah. First timer. Yeah. But, yeah. Uh, it, uh, I did. Uh, I have found uh, in the Wikipedia article a quote from Joss Whedon uh, about him not being happy with the situation. Right. And uh, he says it wasn't a question of them doing things differently, though they changed the ending. It was a matter of doing everything wrong. Uh, they said the lines mostly, but they said them all wrong. They cast it wrong. They designed it wrong. They scored it wrong. He was like, he's apparently just very annoyed that it all was a solid shift from what he was intending it to be and it right. makes me wonder how much of that came out of the difficulties with the language barrier on direction yeah it, well, it could be a bit of that yeah okay well i think it's also that but i also think that it's joss whedon hadn't really established his joss whedon style voice. And like you could see like some of like you could especially see in ron perlman's um banter and like the attempt to have um, like a banter between Sigourney Weaver and Ron Perlman's character in the basketball scene, and it just sort of falls flat. And, yeah. Uh, and it just yeah. It all the banter doesn't hit. Um, some of you could definitely see some of Joss Whedon writing creepy characters, um, and I feel like that probably actually came across because his creepy doctor came across very creepy. At uh, one point, they they label Winona Ryder's character as immensely fuckable. I think they said that's, yeah. that was the quote. Um, Not a great line. It's yeah. a very yeah. No, I I'm interested. I want. I wonder how much of a difference uh, the words were in the script because. Again, like Ron Perlman's character, I think worked out because his banter didn't hit, 
but we know we've known people like that. At least I've known guys like growing up who always had banter like that and nobody liked it. Everyone was like, bro, come on. And then eventually you just get used to it and you're like, all right, he's here. All right. And I guess we do need to, I mean, any Joss Whedon quote, I now have to kind of take with a grain of salt now that like, you know, he's, he's proven to be one of the more disappointing uh, kind of revelations uh, about somebody I, I used to really like. I really like his shows. I'm a big fan of like a lot of his work. And then it's come out in the last couple of years of just what an immense fucking asshole this guy is. And that's basically been corroborated by every single person he's ever worked with. Um, and, and, you know, there's some allegations he was being a little creepy with some of the cast members on Buffy and like just all kinds of shit like that, that like, proves to be very disappointing. Cause to me, like Joss Whedon was the guy who always sort of put himself out there as like somebody who's deeply immersed in nerd culture, but not toxic, you know? And yeah. then you find out like he's the most toxic of all of them. And that just makes it so like, disappointing. I, he's not the most toxic of all of them because maybe not but he's definitely <laughs> Look, the, the, people pretty much the polar, pick out that's but true. yes but, you're right but he's he, definitely the polar opposite of like what he presented himself he, he's more like the uh the stereotype than the exception yeah he's definitely um i don't know i i think a lot of people feel betrayed by joss whedon because he had such an establishment of strong female characters but also they were always very there's always something a bit off about him yeah. and and it's just like um i don't know um uh, getting back to alien uh resurrection i thought it was interesting that they he had uh he wrote i think five different third acts and they were all taking place on earth yeah. uh, and um and i don't know um i am I, I am curious what that would look like uh, but I also don't know, um, like, I feel like once aliens get out on Earth, they would be impossible to kill. Um, yeah. Game over, man. Game e- over. Exactly. Yes, exactly that. And instead, the option that they land on mm-hmm. is nuking Earth, yeah. like drop crashing a ship into it. Like, yeah. Which, and I feel like none of them even really remarked upon the fact that they just like blew up Africa like yeah. it, it, it's like they all it's like the scene with the explosion was added in and it was like afterwards or something so nobody knew that's what was happening because it's not like it didn't seem like the characters at all in any way understood the impact that that the literal impact that was going to have no i mean they that they have like- some that was like an extinction level event asteroid almost it was and they they had some dialogue earlier like saying that earth's like a shithole and everything but if that's the case if like earth is uninhabitable then why are they so worried about it hitting earth like who cares if it's just like a shithole that's already that they don't mind dropping a a continent-sized nuclear weapon on top of uh that's jumping way to the end of course but we do get uh, uh, a scene with uh, the, well, we, we get to meet the crew of the Betty, which are kind of like some scavenger types who uh, have been hired to do a job. They've been brought in uh, to transport some cargo, which turns out to be human beings. Uh, those human beings are then put in front of alien eggs, which impregnate them and perpetuate this experience. So we went from having one alien to a shitload of aliens back to one alien and then this time around it's 12 that's the number we get we get 12 
plus the queen, right? I think if oh, but does that twelve include the one that they killed to get out? A baker's dozen. The baker's dozen. Yeah. <laughs> then the extra question is: Does that count the alien that was then later birthed? Oh, I don't think they knew about that. Yeah, he wouldn't right. be counting that one yet. So, yeah, so there's I guess... somewhere between twelve and fourteen aliens. Yeah, yeah. So a, a manageable number. Like it's good that they're giving us a specific number, and we see a few of them like taken care of. And all of these characters are very heavily armed. I think uh, Sigourney Weaver must have relaxed her uh, no guns um, uh, caveat from the third movie because um, they have a lot of guns. They have a lot of big old and guns. They kill more people than aliens. Yeah. They do. Yeah, there's all I think yeah. Yeah, this might be the only time when like the human protagonists are killing other human protagonists in this movie. Um but there's some interesting stuff going on with that. Like you know, th this crew, like this scavenger crew, uh I think when they're very nonplussed about human trafficking, mm -hmm. that kind of makes it's sort of an insurmountable level of uh, unlikely yeah. unlikability to get over, you know, like None of these guys really bad an eye. Even when they learn about what these like human beings were being used for, like they don't really bad an eye. Uh, and so that's kind of a hard thing. Like I understand wanting to make kind of like gritty anti-heroes. I think Joss Whedon's very good at that. Uh, but I think these guys might go a little over the line. Yeah, I, I definitely don't know if anybody but call could be considered a hero out of the group or even heroic um and call's motivations still feel a little underbaked you know it's like yes she's definitely there to stop the aliens from being released we don't know how she learned about this or like who she actually works for or anything like that we just know that she is uh coming here to stop them and uh what knows who Ripley is and knows kind of all the secrets. But other than that, we don't really get a strong reason for why she wants to be involved in this. So oh, badly. oh, I was just reading through what was in the extended cut. Hey, did did y'all was the did they mention what happened to Wayland Yutani? No. In in my cut, they they say that it was Wayland Yutani was bought out by Walmart. Oh, oh really? I, so, I wonder how much money that was. <laughs> That's pretty funny. That's <laughs> I was thinking that was a possible a possible sponsorship there. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah, that could have been something that got cut during one of the delays. Yeah, and we you you mentioned earlier, JBM, the uh, creepy scientists. I do want to highlight them for a moment because oh half of the casting work was done right there when you put Brad Dourif in this part, uh, and he is. I mean, you know, for those who don't know, he's the voice of Chucky. He's kind of a horror icon. And here he's playing the little Weasley doctor that's like licking the glass and like trying to coax also, the baby over to him. Lord of Rings fame. Yeah, Lord of the Rings. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. Like he's great at playing a Weasley little guy. And uh, I think that's the one of the first indications that this movie was going to be batshit was when he was like antagonizing that alien in its glass case and like licking it and like doing all like he was kissing, i was like he was kissing the glass yes it's so weird look he's a mm, he's one of those scientists he's one of those scientists he, yeah he's the one on that station who wanted to fuck the alien the most absolutely i think the greatest tragedy of this movie as we can all agree no. is that he never got to he never got to poor guy it's just one dream. 
but yeah, they, but the main doctor is played by J.E. Freeman, who I uh, always remember from Miller's Crossing. He's uh, just a great, like, towering, scary character actor. And I think he plays a slimy villain very well here, um, who, through reasons of, uh, like, incident, has to be kept with their group the entire time. You know, they don't just, like, shoot him and leave him somewhere. Um but yeah, that's that really out of character. I was like, oh, come on, just shoot this dude. Like, yeah, there's at least six people there who wanted to shoot him. Like, yeah, they, they all wanted to, and he repeatedly screws them over. Uh, but there, yeah, so hell breaks loose as we see. And we also get a little bit of like, I think this is the first time we see aliens just kind of operating on their own. Like we get a scene where we get to watch like two aliens sort of scheme to kill a third one and use its acid blood to escape. To yeah. The floor. Uh, so we get to see that they're learning a bit. And so maybe they've taken on a little bit of uh, Ripley's characteristics from, you know, spawning from the same DNA. Uh, and they, they get to be like shot autonomously, like without any people around, which is an interesting development there. It's also worth noting this movie is gnarly, like in terms of it's like blood and gore, yeah, like it has some really gross shit. Uh, you know, it's not just enough that like yeah. they gouge out that other alien. Like you have to see its guts spilling out onto the floor. Lots and lots of guts in this movie. Especially but, when the final alien becomes gooified. Oh boy. Yeah, that is uh, that that is definitely a kill that like has stuck with me that's a singularly weird one uh we will get to that one but uh, i do want to shout out the special effects here because you know this this movie has a little bit of like sh like a little bit of shady cdi cgi you know a little bit of uh, a 1997 looking yeah. computer effects but the practical effects in this are amazing like yeah I was reading a thing that they they still used miniatures for all the spaceships because the the crew the they decided that uh, CGI just wasn't good enough yet to do the spaceship scenes. Yeah, and they were right. They were right. Yeah. Absolutely, like it would have looked all boxy and weird, you know. But uh, these look great. I mean, the way that they move and like uh, it, it's kind of like this was the last time that movies were really putting money into animatronics you know so we could really like see this was about as cutting edge as it got for animatronic figures around this time and then resources basically just shifted over to cgi and so we lost a lot of ground in those developments but i think this movie looks fantastic um it's got a nice layer of grime over everything and uh all these aliens look really gross but we get whittled down to the skeleton crew. This is a military vessel that they're on, but all of the soldiers, except for one, are pretty much immediately dispatched. You know, they either escape in a life vessel or they get ma massacred by the alien or get uh, tagged in the back of the head and have to pull some of their own brain out. You know, and That's that uh, that one soldier, uh, Vincent DiStefano. Yes. It uh, was once again played by Raymond Cruz. Uh, yeah, as previously mentioned, Tuco Salamanca from Breaking Bad. Exactly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Playing guy, like, the exact same character. Yeah. <laughs> like I don't think there was a difference between the two. To I mean, the same intonation uh, for sure. Yes. Different characters. Different but motivations, yeah. but. But yeah, that we get kind of whittled down to our skeleton crew. It's just like the crew of the Betty, De Stefano, the Doctor, and then Ripley, uh, and that's kind of who we're left with. And then we get to pick up another one later in the movie, played by Leland Orser, who uh, was one of the guys that human trafficked and has an alien inside him. And nobody plays a panicked, sweaty nerd like Leland Orser. Yeah. You might remember him from Seven, uh, where he was the victim of the lust kill. 
uh, and he 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 panics like nobody else on screen can panic, and that's what he gets to do for this whole half of the movie that he's in. And so uh, there there's two or there's one little thing that I had I had noticed, which was uh, I think that they actually intend that the Betty crew kidnapped them knowingly. Yeah, I think so. so. It wasn't like they weren't finding out about human trafficking. They were going, ah, that's what they did. Yeah, uh, we see them at one point, like in the theatrical cut, like just burying them around and they have like glass cases. Like we can tell what's in them. They know. Yeah. So, and that's, that's kind of a big barrier to the point where like, there's supposed to be kind of a twist reveal when the captain of the Betty is like the first to die. Mm-hmm. Right. That's like a classic twist. Like this is the guy who is, uh, the, the most authoritative, the most in charge, the one that everybody respects, and of course he's going to be taken out. But it doesn't really land because no. you don't like this guy at mm. all. Like he's Michael Wincott has an incredible voice. I could listen to him read the phone book, but uh, I did not like this character at all, and I didn't. I wasn't invested in him. Yeah, once he said the words "immensely fuckable," I was like, I don't know about you, bud. Yeah, um, but then when he dies, like. Two people seem upset about it for about 30 seconds, and then they're just like, all right, whatever. Yeah. Well, I think it's really funny that the lady is like so supposed to be so distraught that her boyfriend is dead, uh, that she just like she just starts to flail around incompetently, especially <laughs> underwater. She's always like, Oh, woe is to me. And I, I hate when like people are like portray women as being like oh, I'm so overcome by emotion because a significant other died. You're like, oh, come off of it. Yeah. If anything, it should have been like Christy freaking out, you know, the guy with the gun arms because like they were clearly closer, you know, it was a first mate's kind of situation. Like he should have been more distraught. He should have been, instead he got to be like the super badass for half the movie. Let's talk about the underwater section of the movie. Yeah. I, I always, I don't know. For me, first of all, it's, a goddamn spaceship where'd all the water come from of course um, <laughs> which is throughout the alien franchise where all this water come from uh, <laughs> but at the same time i i'm a child that like used to play like lara croft or tomb raider and like so so any underwater thing just fills me with tension that they're mm. gonna sound horribly um and seeing the alien swim is both a little janky and really fun um, yeah and i just like i don't know i both i both think that scene makes no sense and i both really like it <laughs> yeah i'm i'm kind of with you it's pretty intense and i love any underwater stuff and i think it's a really good touch to like have them just barely make it through this little tunnel and they see the hole and they're getting up there and they're going to get air and then they can't get air like they have to wait a little longer. That is such a stressful thought. Like because there's that that film over the opening, yeah. you know. So and then uh, they're, once they get through the film and they're like, "Ah, oh, shit, we gotta go back," and we just see a shitload of like alien eggs opening, yeah. like waiting to get them. Like that was a well paced scene, and it was a stressful one apparently because uh, Winona Ryder almost drowned when she was twelve, oh. and oh. so she had a real fear of the water. She was going to use a body double, but it really, they really couldn't find anybody who could su- uh, successfully imitate her. So she did ultimately do the underwater scenes, had a full panic attack. Uh, and Ron Perlman almost died doing that, too. He hit his oh. head uh, while swimming under there, got a concussion, almost and passed out. Um, they were able to pull him out of there. But, yeah, 
he, no, he did. That was a dangerous uh, little set piece to do. So I'm glad everybody's okay, and I'm glad that they uh, pulled it off because it is, I think, one of the more successful bits in the movie. Um, you know, so they're they're making their way through the ship. They're fighting everybody. Ripley is like acting really weird and cool. You know, we've learned the important thing that we learned about Ripley in this movie is that she has retained some of the alien acid blood. And we know this, this is important because she uses this trick like five different times in the movie. Like she's going to cut her hand and then she's going to use it to like acid something open. That's sort of her go-to move. But she's also super strong and super fast and uh, just doesn't really have any fear of the aliens. Uh, so she's kind of shepherding them through. But again, it's not super clear what she's getting out of helping them. Uh, you know, it's obvious why they would want her around. Obviously, she's she's saving their ass. But uh, but I think the highlight of the movie, and Sigourney Weaver says this scene was kind of the reason she agreed to do the movie ultimately, is when they find the room of the other Ripley clones. You know, mm -hmm. so we learn that Rip Ripley's got a tattoo in her arm that says eight. We find a room that says one through seven. And we get to go through there, and it's like this amazing, like, weird creature workshop of all these failed experiments. Like, these these human-alien things that have, like, merged together. And then one of them is still alive, like, barely clinging to life and begging Ripley to kill her. Uh, it's a really cool scene. It's, like, really mm -hmm. great visual effects, really creative, and it's, like, fairly horrifying body horror. I had taken roughly three bites of a cheeseburger at that point yes. when that scene came on, and I was like... I think I'm putting the burger down for a few. Uh, I need to get through this and then some kind of palate cleanse scene and then I can resume the burger. I'm going to be thinking about eating teeth. Yeah. yeah. It was be a tooth in the burger. It was a really scene and I thought the emotional reaction from Sigourney Weaver was really like spot on. I, I do think that they like, honestly, I would have preferred if they had shot the lady um, uh, as opposed to just like, flame throwing her uh, that feels like that'd still be a slow death right like yeah. that's not that's not the quick release that she's asking for yeah um, uh, but it's a it's a cool scene and honestly like up to this point everything we've been describing is it's a pretty normal action movie like it's a little grisly it's a yes. little grimy but it's like it's it's a still a pretty normal sci-fi action movie that's all about to change, okay? Uh, because Ripley is going to fall through a grate, get carried away into a writhing mass of alien flesh, and that's when we get the suggested, kind of like implied, or maybe just like uh, I don't, I don't know exactly what they were going for with this, but there does seem to be like an alien sex scene. Yeah, like. Um, well, I think I think it's um, it's weird because they're like they're. There's insinuating that it's maternal, but it's shot such sexual. Yeah. Uh, so it's like you're like, what is going on here? Uh, and um, also, uh, the um, her, the, I think it's called the newborn. Is, yeah. Uh, kills the queen uh, right. immediately, um, and then has this moment, this tete a tete with with Sigourney Weaver with Ripley. Um, and it's just super intimate. It's so intimate. Yeah, it's really, I mean, it looks like she's being carried. I think that's what's happening is like we're just seeing a close up of her being carried by the alien to go see like the queen giving birth. 
but the way that it's shot in like close up or like the fading in and out and like Sigourney's reactions to it are very sensual. So there's something being conveyed here. Like it's not entirely clear. It's not explicitly like alien on human sex, but it's also not, not, um, there's, there, there's a lot of ambiguity in this, you know? And yeah, we should get to the newborn here. Let's talk about the newborn. This is the element of the movie that split fans the most um, because, you know, it feels like a, a, an evolution of the series in maybe the wrong direction. Basically, we learn that the queen alien that uh, Ripley birthed has inherited human reproductive organs and is about to give birth to the first human alien hybrid. And this thing comes out in this real goopy scene and it looks like this hulking white skeleton with a pot belly and like dog fangs and like these weird sunken eyes. But like you could see the eyes. You can see like the beady, like uh the you know, the the weird yeah, big wet you eyes. You can see the skull in his it. Eyes are so sad. And yeah. Eyes emote so much throughout the thing. So I I'm a very I have a very mixed reaction to the uh the newborn alien because I think that the traditional alien is so scary and I love the traditional alien from all the way back from, from alien, the original. Yeah. I think it's the scariest format. Um, and I, I really like it. Um, I don't think that this is needed, but at the same time, there's something so disconcerting that really works um, with this newborn, especially how it keeps giving sad eyes to Ripley. Um, it, it is very disconcerting. But at the same time, I would have preferred if they'd stuck with an alien. Uh, I don't know. I'm very conflicted. I'm kind of in the same boat because they're they're clearly trying to say something with this, right? Because, you know, this thing comes out and the first thing it does, its first act in the world is to kill its own mother, right? So it's some kind of commentary on like the alien DNA corrupting or the human DNA corrupting the alien strain, which is just very like organized and matriarchal and kind of clear and makes sense where the human DNA adds an element of chaos, of violence, of unpredictability. You know, I think they've, they've got something going on about that. Uh, I think the design of the creature is just a little off. I think it's, I think it's done well. I think that the, the prosthetic, the creature they create looks good. It moves well, and it's interesting to look at. There's just something so kind of like gangly and lopsided about it that it doesn't it's ever feel as threatening weird little nose um it's maybe it's the nose yeah the little little pig nose that goes up like it's yeah it's a weird choice and yeah like you said having its eyes like be very expressive and like kind of like cute at times you know and then turn on you really suddenly is an interesting idea and i'm just wondering if something got lost in the translation here it also feels slow, right? It feels yeah. like very big and very slow, and it feels it like you can get feel away. Feel as deadly because it doesn't like it's got a human jaw. Like human jaws aren't that aren't as scary as the the alien jaws. Yeah, yeah, it kills the scientist guy immediately, which I was thought I thought it was really funny in that scene because there's like we'll keep the creepy scientists alive to be creepy and to provide exposition, which you don't need. Ex you don't need anything that he says. In that no at all i just i i like i like to think that like that uh that guy is like the queen aliens mank you know he just <laughs> likes to have him around like to to add some color and uh, uh be atmospheric yeah it, it's it, i i mean i like that they kept him around just because i love brad Dourif and i want to see him do weird shit 
and he does a lot of weird shit in this. He does. But you know, we we've all had some like logistical like uh, we have had to suspend our disbelief a little bit for some of the previous movies about like okay, how did that egg get onto the ship? How did the queen manage to hang on to the lander and like make it inside the ship? I think you really need to suspend disbelief with this yeah. one because. Like Ripley has to run and then jump across a gangplank to get into the Betty and escape. And this thing's just there waiting for them. Like, how fast is this thing? How fast is this thing? And as well as suspending your disbelief that, so they set up that it takes three hours for the spaceship to go home. So the yes. aliens have been killing and getting people organized and queen and development and all happened in like two hours and 50 minutes. Well, okay. actually... Uh, it's even less than that because when Call takes over the ship and decides to crash it, she cuts like an hour off the time by turning off the brakes and going full speed at the planet. Yeah. And so, because at one point they're like, we got like 90 minutes. He's like, nah, we got like 45. And they're like, what the, f what? So like, I guess it's more like 15 to half an hour, but still yeah. It, yeah. it's, it's a short amount of time for this whole setup to have occurred. Yeah. Considering how none of it, the aliens got free 20 minutes into the movie. Yeah. 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 They, they held breaks loose pretty early in this, but this all leads up to the final showdown with the newborn. And I have to shout out, we have, we get kind of the three coolest and grossest kills like back to back uh, in, in this section. Uh, so the evil scientist is killed when the uh, guy with the alien in his chest decides to give birth into the back of his head. Like he grabs him, he's freaking out, grabs him, holds onto him. And then like, we get this crazy shot going down his throat with an alien coming up out of it. Yes. And then it just bursts through the guy's head, killing both of them. Uh, that's pretty gross and pretty cool and pretty weird. I, I kind of appreciated that scene. I don't know if I needed going down the throat, yeah. but I appreciate that they went there and went weird with it. Uh, we then get the death of DiStefano on the uh, Betty, which is a great shot of just like the newborn grabbing his head in one hand and then just like squishing it like an orange. Yeah. It's quick, but it's like pretty brutal and pretty gross. Uh, and then, of course, the final best and weirdest kill of the entire movie is of the newborn itself. Uh, oh, man. All right, so a little backstory on this. So the the uh, Dan Hedaya character, the general who pulls out his own brain earlier in the movie, uh, this death was originally written to happen to him. Oh. Uh, and that was going to be early in the movie. Like a seal gets broken, he gets sucked through a tiny hole, and then gets chunked out. And I think they decided that this was too epic of a kill to waste on just kind of a, a small supporting character. So they decided that this is how the final bad guy is going to die. And that is... Ripley is going to do her magic acid blood trick, poke a hole through the glass, and let it suck the gigantic alien newborn through a hole about the size of a quarter. Uh, pretty gnarly. Pretty gross. And when you see it sure. in, in practice, it's like all these chunks coming out, and then like the guts spill out and get sucked back out. And it's like, it's pretty cool the way they pull it off i have to say like it's, it's one that's always stuck with me that whole time it was happening i was just going how much how much oxygen is in this room yeah, no, how much air is in this room to rush out it seems like all the air should be gone by now and pressure should have neutralized in a way that is bad for the humans and good for the alien well less yeah. bad for the alien than what was happening 
My explanation uh, for this is just that uh, A, Ripley's not fully, she's like superhuman, so she can hold her breath, and B, robot. Call is not a human. We, we yeah. learned that. I guess we forgot to mention that because it's a deeply uh, uh, unmoving uh, twist to, to, to the Call character. It really doesn't move the needle for me on Call one way or the other that she turns out to actually be a cyborg. Um, yeah, it doesn't really matter. <laughs> but the two human characters are up front in the cockpit, like breathing with gas masks. Um, but yeah, uh, I, <laughs> th that scene was coming on right around when it was time to start recording. And I was like, Hey, hold on. I'm watching an alien be gooped real quick <laughs> as it just slowly gets like, 30 to 35 minutes later, it was done. Yeah. yeah. I do want to see just like an extra long recording. Yeah. An, an extended cut of that. Yeah. But it was like, all right, well, this is, this is a way to go. Um, but yeah, and and then they end it with yeah, like we said, half of the Earth being blown up, but they're still treating it like, oh, Earth, we finally made it. Like that's what I really agree with you. Just I think that was a shot, that was a change. Like uh, they they changed the ending or insisted on yeah. that change of the ending without referencing it anywhere else in the script. You know, like they were acting like they were arriving home, like to a, a place that they were welcome and excited to be mm -hmm. seeing. And now here's and, my question. What was the final scene for you guys? Because my understanding is it was different for me. For us, it's uh, uh, they're they're arriving to Earth, and she has the line about like uh, uh, I don't know, I'm a stranger here myself. I think that's the last line of the movie. The last line of the movie. Okay. Uh, what because was it? for me, it's similar, except they it's call and ripley on earth having a conversation about what they're going to do next oh and uh and call and like the final is like call saying uh it's a lot of places somebody could get lost around here because they're talking about the government probably coming to yeah. check out what just happened and then the implication is that the two of them then run off and like hang out together for an extended period of time that's still the final line of the game, weirdly. Yeah, oh, that, okay. that whole thing about getting lost together. Yeah, yeah. So, um, which might be a good time to transition the game. Do we have anything else to say about the movie? I think we'll we will of course uh, circle back as we always do. But uh, anything else to say off the top? No, because this this game has a pretty interesting history for it too. Uh, most notably, this game was not released until October 26, 2000. So that's a full three years after this movie came out and already flopped. It was developed by Argonaut Games and published by Fox Interactive. This is exclusive to the PlayStation 1. So development for this started all the way back in 1996. All right, so this is a really long production cycle. Uh, the developers here, Argonaut Games, are probably best known for creating the Star Fox series on Nintendo. So, you know, go them. Star Fox is fun. Uh, and when development first began, this game was going to be like a top-down shooter based on an obscure PS1 game called Loaded, which I've never heard of. But I guess, like, think like Gauntlet, I guess, you know, like you're top-down, you know, Elf needs food. Uh, as production went on, the, the developers started to realize the top-down genre was pretty stale, and so they wanted to pivot to more of a third-person action game, kind of like Tomb Raider. Uh, so they were redeveloping that. And they received steady support from their film production. They got a lot of stills and plot developments. And the filmmakers even asked them to develop a short video game to put in the movie, which you actually do see. It's like they have a little arcade cabinet on their ship. You see like two seconds of it. But apparently they made like a pretty a fully playable game uh, for them to use it. And then they were pissed that they only used two seconds. 
Uh, eventually, though, communication from the studio dropped off. It left the developers kind of wondering if their game was even going to be released. Uh, they hadn't heard any official word of cancellation, so they decided to pivot yet again in late 1998, already a year after the movie came out, deciding to change the entire platform to make it a first-person shooter, which was kind of emerging as the most dominant genre at the time. I think they figured, like, being this late in the game, the one thing that they could do to keep the game from being canceled and shelved would just be to pivot to something that people were buying. Mm -hmm. um, but when this game came out, the PS2 had already been out for seven months. All right, nobody was buying PlayStation 1 games anymore, especially for one for a movie that came out three years ago that people didn't like. Uh, so this one went largely unnoticed and has become a bit of a collector's item since because uh, it just didn't sell very well. Uh, the few reviews it did get were actually fairly kind, but ironically, one of the principal complaints that this game got was the dual analog control stick control scheme, um, because that was just the, that was that's the no. way that all first-person shooter yeah. games are played now. Uh, but at the time, this was kind of the, one of the first uh, uh, console games to ever do it. It is so much of a unique thing that the PlayStation One didn't have joysticks. Yeah, they released yeah, the, the joystick controller partway through the lifespan of the PlayStation. So this was new to, I won't say new to console gamers because the Nintendo 64 had a joystick. But yeah. this was like, this was the first controller to have the double joystick configuration that it has now been a an absolute standard since I mean, that it, day. It feels so natural now, you know, you use one stick to look around, one to walk around, you know, it just feels right. But at the time this game came out, nobody had ever played the game like that. And they're like, no, this is weird. I can't get used to this. Like, it, it's, yeah, I'm, I'm having trouble wrapping my head around it. Um, so I will say th this is, I think, our first PlayStation 1 game that we've talked about on this show, oh. if I'm not mistaken. Might be, yeah. You know, I love classic games. I, I love to go back to these often. This is an era that I always kind of struggle with. I think, you know, the PS1 actually has some real bangers. It has some fantastic games, some of my favorite of all time, but it also has just as much that feels like there's a there's always a feeling of like unfinishedness to all of these yeah. games. Like they feel not like the development was unfinished, more like they're primordial. You know, they are uh, becoming what the final form is going to be. Um, and you just need to rewrite your brain a bit. A real addiction to cutscenes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were really in these cutscenes, and like controls are always so confusing and so unintuitive. Like, I feel like this this game has a really inefficient control setup. If you play it in the default mode, it's like you have two different buttons for changing your inventory, two different buttons for changing your weapons, and then two different buttons for activating things. You know, in the meantime, you don't get a jump, you don't get a strafe, you don't get anything like that. So I feel like they could have used this controller a little bit more efficiently and gotten more out of it. All that being said, I you know I'm going to pick on it a little bit just because it is old and it's trying to do like this game was surprisingly pretty good. Like mm -hmm. it's it's pulling off a lot of uh, pretty cool stuff and it's more ambitious than you would really expect it to be. Yeah, I uh, haven't I didn't have an opportunity to play the game, but I have watched uh, about 15 minutes of it. Yeah, and uh, I watched two different people play it. One person who didn't appear to be using control sticks, uh, and then one person who was. And so at first, the first person I was watching, it was really janky. And I'm like, this might not have come out and had joystick support. And then the second person was clearly using joysticks. And I looked it up and saw that this game was one of the first major, I say 
it was one of the first big titles known notable titles to use that control scheme yeah and uh it it seemed to play much better it looked like uh very golden eye or uh, perfect dark-esque yeah uh, and what you know the things that they're doing here are pretty limited you know you're really never not looking down a hallway you know it's like yeah. it's 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 true to the movie in that fact which has you know pretty standard set design for the most part uh but you're walking through a lot of like similar looking hallways and shooting things that jump out of you in the dark uh you know so it's not trying to do too too much it's not trying to break the system in any way like you can see how they could get away with it but uh, you know, I I found myself enjoying it. Like it, it, again, there's always that disconnect you get when you go back to games of this generation. You need to remember to save often. You need to remember, uh, you know, you have to get used to restarting entire levels all the time when you die. Like yes, that's always very frustrating. But uh, once you kind of get into the swing of it, like it's pretty enjoyable. This game lets you play as four different characters. You get to be either Ripley, Call, uh, Christy, or DiStefano, but it kind of doesn't matter because they all play exactly the same. Like, they're just telling us they're different characters, you know? It's like, I don't know. I can't see them. Oh, sorry, you were going to say something, Jim? I was like, do you think that they had enough enemies? That's an interesting thing, yeah, because you you have aliens and you have soldiers yeah. right and then later in the game you get some face huggers that attack you uh but yeah there really aren't that many and that I just, was just comparing to the other like i don't know if like i'm just more of an arcadey um type of person but i i still like the of all of the alien games we played the arcade game was my favorite yeah uh, and it was just like uh it was so action-packed and like this one there's a lot of uh, I don't know, because I like an explorey game, yeah. but I just feel like a lot of the um, corridors were so similar that it, it didn't have that joy of exploration that I get from some games. So, like, I don't think it was a bad game. I just think, um, yeah, I just, like, it, it was missing a couple of hits that would have made yeah. it a better game for me. Yeah, it's... Uh... <clears throat> I, I actually just looked up Half-Life came out a few years before this did. Yeah, 98. Uh, Half-Life kind of set the standard. Granted, Half-Life was a PC game, did not have controller support in any way, shape, or form. No, no. But uh, it it feels like, and what I saw from the reviews is that it gets boring over long periods of time. Uh, apparently, this is like a five-hour game. Yeah, about that. It, there's 10 levels total, um, and it just kind of recreates the plot of the movie. Like, I, I did, I played a decent amount of this, but I did skip ahead in the uh, in a long play to see if the alien hybrid made it into this game, and it does. Um, but you don't get the gory, like, pulled through the window kill. Oh. This time you just, like, open the, uh, you open the rear, like, bay door, and it just gets sucked out. And you get a little cutscene of it exploding out in space, but that's about it. Yeah, I, I think the biggest complaint here is that it seems like there's a small variety of weapons, though there is a, a few different weapons for sure. Um, but you're just kind of fighting the same aliens in different hallways as the game progresses. And so I think that was something that could have been a little bit more interesting. Um, but I yeah. feel like they... For what it was, they did a better job than you probably would have expected. Yeah, I think you can compare this more, you know, compare this less to something like Half-Life and more to something like Doom. You know, it feels kind of yeah. more like a uh, 
a slightly more survival horror angled version of doom you know it's uh, not like things jumping out at you every second but you do have to be judicious with so your ammo there is a game called doom 3 yes which uh was a tie-in for i believe the doom movie no, not a tie. Yeah, I don't think it was they, a tie-in, but it was a spiritual. Doom three uh, came out in like two thousand two or something, and then uh, the movie was two thousand six. So I think the movie is probably based off of Doom three. Two thousand and four. Yeah. Oh, two thousand four. Excuse me. Yeah. Yeah, but they were pretty close together. But yeah, they, but yeah, it it felt a little more like the Doom game because uh, the, the flashlight is a big element in that game too, right? Yes. Like. You you get apparently 200 years in the future. We still haven't cracked batteries because <laughs> the flashlight that you get here, like you have to use it very sparingly. Like it always recharges, but it does deplete at a ridiculous rate. Like you are gonna you have maybe like 10 seconds of illumination time before your uh, flashlight goes dead. It's like uh, I don't know about you, but I've over my life had a couple of those hand pump operated flashlights. Oh, sure. And the crank ones. Yeah, uh, not not the crank, but like the hand pump where it's a squeeze. Oh, I've never seen and, one of those. Uh, 10 oh. seconds is about as long as I've ever wanted to use one of those. That's around the point where I'm like, all right, I'm good. This was fun. But I'm not but like, using this. They've cracked space travel. They've cracked uh, really cloning. elaborate cloning techniques. They've cracked uh, uh, alien biochemistry. But they've they, never quite figured out batteries and flashlights. Yeah, they never found. They never figured out the lithium-ion battery. Yeah, they, uh, I guess not. Like it, it depletes so ridiculously fast. And I think the idea is for it to build suspense and like make you be. I, I think this game wants you to slow down. Uh, more so than like a straight arcade shooter. I think this game wants you to take your time and think out your moves a little bit, mm -hmm. uh, which I can appreciate. You know, I think I was more in a mode for wanting to run through and blast things. And, you know, the shooting is fine. It is imprecise in the way that a lot of PS1 games are. Yeah. Like it really takes some uh, calibrating of your own kind of play style. But the shooting is fine. I, I think the weapons you get are, they don't look that distinctive, but they feel distinctive. So I, I'll give them points for that. They're all just kind of like gray tubes at the end of your arm, you know. Yeah. They're all about the same looking. Uh, but you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I think I was just expecting something far worse than mm -hmm. this. Like when you get something that is so badly delayed, and it's for a project that like nobody seems to really care about anymore. It's not getting a sequel. It's not in the zeitgeist. There's a big chance. There's a big question of like, okay, is this going to be? A golden eye like that was released three years after the movie and became a huge hit or is it going to be like you know just completely unplayable and uh this is not a golden eye by any means but this is a surprisingly competent and uh pretty decently fun little shooter they they at least found yeah. a middle ground yeah 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 absolutely well do we have anything else to say about the alien franchise before we shut it out i just i, I oh you know go ahead justin uh, I I have to bring up the the mess hall gunfight. Oh, what the fuck! With, with the the gun hidden in the thermos, full of moonshine. The, the gun hidden in the thermos. Uh, the oh, guy oh, shooting, okay. the stealing, and getting the deflection shot to kill the guard. I I have a question for the extended cut. Maybe it's answered in this. Why is she trying to drink the thermos with boxing gloves? Don't know. Where did she get the boxing gloves? That's like such an out of nowhere scene. Like all of a sudden she's just in the back, like fumbling with the thermos, wearing it's full boxing gloves. Weird scene. 
it's it's so weird like was there a deleted scene or something i don't know like i i don't i that entire part of boxing gloves didn't register in my brain when i saw it so i oh, don't man. it always stands out so weird and i was wondering it's like is this just like a weird french like esoteric thing like you know uh, are we supposed to piece together we always get like, wasted with boxing gloves I always kind of charitably met it halfway and thought, okay, she's doing a visual gag about how toxic this moonshine is so much so that she doesn't want to directly touch the thermos, but they're not looking at her. It's a dumb bit. Like I, what? I thought it was just a dumb bit. I thought she was trying to be fun and cutesy. Uh, yeah. And like, they weren't even paying attention to her to see her be fun and cutesy. Or just like making herself seem crazier. So oh. she fits in better with the crew. Like, yeah. I don't know. It that was always so baffling to me. I never really understood what decision so, was going into that. Uh, and I've just pulled up that scene. Okay. Uh, they're in the gym. Yeah. So she's probably just been fucking around in the gym because that they're just killing time at this point. They're watching uh <laughs> the TV sales channel. Uh, yeah. Whatever that is, the telesales, and so. I think she's just been really bored. Maybe she, they were using a punching bag at some point. I don't know. See, but. that's still asking us to make too much of a leap. Like, I don't get, I don't get how that made the final cut. I don't know. That's my one pedantic thing. Okay, for the Aliens series, which one is your favorite movie? Which one is your favorite game? Oh, okay, let's go to Justin on this first because you're the you're the newbie to all of these. Um, I have many opinions. Oh man, uh, I think it's close between the first two movies. Uh, possibly the first movie. Uh, I think it leans a little more on that way, but I did enjoy the character variety of the second movie. And the game would have to be uh, the one for uh, Alien 3 that we played. Nice. Okay. Uh, that one was actually fun. Yeah, I've, I've gone back and played a little bit of the Genesis version of that uh, to to contrast and compare since we recorded it. And that, that's a pretty solidly fun game, too. Terrible music in that version, but <laughs> no, it's an enjoyable little game. Uh, for me, like movie-wise, it's pretty easy. It goes it goes in order. Uh, my ranking is one, two, three, four, um, which I think is most consensus. But again, you catch me on a certain day in a certain mood, or if I've just watched Aliens, I might tell you Aliens is the greatest movie ever made in my life because it pumps you up in such a crazy way that like it's hard not to get on board with it. I think as a film, Alien is probably a superior piece of work, but uh, it's it's always a bit of a coin toss for me with those. And as for the games, um, yeah, I got to go... Um, I, yeah, I've got to go Alien Arcade. Yeah, or Aliens Arcade. I, I enjoyed that one a lot. Um, I just I like arcade shooters like that. It was fast. It was fun. It was colorful. I enjoyed that one. How about you, J-Man? Uh, for me, the movies, uh, Alien uh, is my favorite movie, except for the only reason I think it, Aliens loses out to that is because I know what happens after Aliens. That, <laughs> oh, man. Right. You're, you're pitting that on Fincher? Yeah, and like I'm just like I'm I'm so like I, I can't live in a world where Hicks and um everybody like lives and like lives happily ever after. Like and so if Alien Three didn't exist, I think Aliens might be my favorite. But Alien is like such a perfect movie, uh and so creepy. Um and um I think I was torn between the Alien Arcade game and the creepy alien 
murder game. Uh, oh, Alien oh. Isolation. Yeah. Isolation. I forgot uh, about Isolation. But uh, Alien, I love a, an arcade game, so I'm going to go for the arcade game. That's a that, and that's a good pick, and I mean, yeah, I I didn't. Only reason I didn't toss out isolation is just because we played very little of it, and I've I've played the entire game independently of the show, and I will say that's my favorite Alien video game overall. But of the ones we really kind of dove into on this show, I would say the Aliens arcade. The uh, the entire time we played, uh, oh my god, how did I just forget the name of it? You literally just said it. Alien or Alien Isolation? Yeah, Alien Isolation. Yeah. I was just thinking, I was hoping that the aliens were dumb and they weren't dumb. No, that was they're my very biggest smart. problem. Was they're... I was like, you don't see me in the corner of this room. Uh, you're staring at me. I think you see me. They are smart and mean and fast. Yeah, yes. they're they're scary in that game. Definitely a recommend on that game. But uh, this was a fun series for me to go through. I, I I try to watch the Alien series at least once a year, you know, and I may even just power through and watch Prometheus and Covenant after this just to be a completionist. Uh, because I think those those movies don't totally work for me, but there are things to enjoy in them. And uh, it is another hit of Alien. As far as the series going forward, uh, report is right now that a, a new movie is in development from Fede Alvarez, who you might Ooh. know as the director of the Evil Dead remake yeah. and uh, Don't Breathe, you know, a very good horror director who uh, I think wants to take it back to kind of its roots and make it more of a more of a direct slasher film, which could be very fun. I don't know. I don't know much about it or if that project's actually happening, but uh, that could be very fun. So um, okay. yeah, and to rate this uh, this movie, yes. Uh, I uh, I would like to rate this movie as I like it. I don't care if anyone else does it. Um, and uh, I think the game is good. Yeah. I think that works. How about just you, Justin? Um, I, I wasn't the biggest fan of this movie. I thought the game was good. It, it seemed fun. Uh, I don't know. I, I think there's something about, and I think J-Ban kind of said it, Joss Whedon, one, it's an interpretation, a, a translation, whatever, of Joss Whedon's work. But also, I, it just doesn't feel like it. the voice was there. Um, like that mess hall scene, I was like, this scene felt like it would be the weakest scene in Hellboy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. It felt like it belonged more in a movie like Hellboy than in in this movie. Would it change your mind if you knew that that over-the-shoulder uh, basketball uh, throw that Sigourney Weaver does was real? I already knew it was real. Yeah. What? Okay. No good. way. That was real. That was a real shot. Like that. They. She was trying to get it all day, and finally they were about to give up. And the director's like, "I oh, don't worry. I'll just CGI it." And so she's like, "Let me just try one more time." And then she did it. She nailed it like perfectly. And they had to cut away really quick because Ron Perlman immediately broke character and was like, "Oh my god." Like he was freaking out, like on yeah, camera. He, he had like you a moment s- of disbelief, and then that's when they had to cut. They're like, "Oh, he, we got as much footage as we could before Ron Perlman lost his shit." Yeah, you'll you'll notice how quickly they cut out of that scene. It's because Ron Perlman ruined it immediately. But they're like, "Yeah, we have to use that take, obviously." And uh, I, I was also reading that technically the basketball leaves the frame for just a moment. Yeah, and the director's like, "We can." patch that in so it's there and yeah. she was we Sigourney Weaver was like no it stays as it was she she 
She said in an interview after that, that after getting married and having her kids, that was her proudest moment in her life. (laughs) I I appreciate that. I hope she's being facetious, but yeah. For me, uh, I am going to go, I'm going to go good movie because I do defend this movie. It's flawed. It's batshit, but I love a good batshit mess of a movie. Like it's, it, it, what say whatever you will about it. It is never once boring. It is not a boring movie in the least. Uh, This is a movie that has the line of uh, uh, paraphrasing, but you've given her a human womb. (laughs) And I'm like, Jesus, what are we doing? All right, no, I'm changing my answer. 10 out of 10, great, perfect masterpiece. Yes, I'm standing by that. Yeah, that's the exact reason why I like and defend this movie is because of how fucking weird that gets. Um, and I'm going to say this is a this is a good game. Yeah, this is not a masterpiece. This isn't my favorite alien game we played, but we are going to get to some PS1 adaptations of other movies down the line on this show oh, that boy. are going to make you want to tear your eyes out. And this did not make me want to do that. Uh, I had a decent time with this one. If I had to guess, the only other good one is going to be like Toy Story. Possibly. Possibly. Yeah, there's a Toy, Toy Story, Story 2 one. Uh, there's a Toy Story 2 on PS1. Um, but the first you know, Toy Story on? Super Nintendo. What? Yeah. Yeah, it's 95. It's a late Super Nintendo, but it's on there. But either way, we will get to that. Uh, But it won't be this next week because uh, this next week we're going into December, which means we are going to do an entire month of holiday-related movies and games, which is going to be very exciting. And I know we've just come off a long stretch of horror. Like, honestly, we just did eight eight solid weeks of horror. But I'm afraid I have to add one more horrific uh, nightmare movie (laughs) for you guys because we're watching Polar Express this week. (laughs) The Polar Express, absolutely. We are playing that and uh, watching the movie, and uh, who boy, I'm going to have some thoughts and feelings about The Polar Express. Um, But you're going to want to tune in for more Christmas-related nonsense throughout the entire month of December. And then, Justin, I promise we have not forgotten your Justin's (laughs) choice. It is going to be coming the first week of January. You can be as mean as you want. Now, I'm, I'm trying to think of what the other horror movies were. Well, it's all four aliens, right? And right. then the uh, Warlock, uh, Texas Chainsaw. Oh, right. What else did we do? Oh, now? yeah, because we had the the Halloween. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. We did a whole month October. Of yeah. yeah. Okay. Wait, wow, why am I Puppet Master? That was another. Yeah. yeah. We did a month of horror, and then we did a month of Alien. Yes. That is what you need to be thankful for. Absolutely. <laughs> yes. The aliens haven't made it to Earth yet. I mean, really, what is the alien if not a metaphor for a turkey? You know, it's like stuffing and like, yeah, the little thing pops out. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. <laughs> Wait, the thing pops? Does that happen? Does the thing pop yeah, out of you, your turkey? When you cook a turkey, they, <laughs> they have a little thermometer that pops out. Yeah, it pops up. It was like, and then like, it, it it's usually accompanied turkey? by a spasm of gore, you know, but yeah. Okay, look, I've never cooked for. a turkey before, so I don't know. <laughs> Me neither. I'm trying for the first time this year. Yeah. Well, we'll see how it goes. We'll see how it goes. All right, folks. Well, uh, we will see you next week for the first of our Christmas marathon with the Polar Express. Uh, and in the meantime, uh, stay sexy out there, you big, white, wet albino babies. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, no. No.